right, so lucky, lucky you. Um, you get a double dose this weekend because I recorded an episode last night. And now, as I promised, my brother Phil is back. And so we're going to talk about a couple books. And he's going to give us an update on what he's been reading because I'm really interested to hear what he thinks about some of the books he's been reading. Um, I got a little bit of a, a vested interest in those books. And you'll find out in a little while why that is. First, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, when I when I record a podcast about a day or a day and a half afterwards that after I upload it, I go onto iTunes and make sure it's there. And so I went onto iTunes earlier today and uh, the episode that I recorded last night is not on yet. However, we have a review. <laughs> we actually have somebody who posted a comment to the podcast. And the comment was uh, four out of five stars, something along the lines of good podcast, the problem that the gentleman or whoever it was who read, who uh, was listening, who posting the comment was, he said, if you have to drink, you need to have some sort of a cough button or a mute button so that the sound of clinkling of crinkling, uh, the clinking of ice is not, is not heard because it's irritating. So to whoever you are, uh, thank you. Um, I don't know what a cough or a mute button is. Um, this is about as primitive of a setup. Mute. Mute, 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 mute button. This is about as, as primitive of a setup as you can find. I will do my best. It's usually me because I, I drink my uh, my bourbons with, with um, ice and Phil drinks his straight up. So I apologize. I will do my very best. But thank you for listening and thank you for posting a comment. So uh, that's the, I guess, the first bit of housekeeping. And I don't know whether the person was commenting on a on a podcast that we recorded together or one of mine. I, I can't really tell. But anyways, that, that uh, I thought that was interesting. So, Phil, <coughs> really? It's going to be like that? Um, give us an update because I, I know what you've been reading and you've been really close-lipped about, about the books you've been reading. Um, I obviously updated you all on the books I've been up to. Um, last night, I went through four books last night that I, uh, I updated everybody on, but I want to hear what you've been reading. And you know there's three books in particular that I want to hear your, your reviews of. So you got it. Well, Rob, thank you. I've actually been uh, reading quite a, quite a few books. Um, I, uh, I, I subscribe to a daily email called BookBub that sends me like a deal every day of like four or five books that are um special prices on amazon and so i've been taking a lot of my uh, suggestions from there i read sophie's choice uh which that i've actually looked at for i've looked at sophie's choice a few times and i was interested in it but had never really gotten up the nerve to read it so can you quickly give me an idea of whether it's worth it uh, it's totally worth it, and you should read it, and that's all I'm going to say. Uh, I also read Airport by Arthur Haley, uh, which I absolutely loved. Um, I really enjoyed reading it because, you know, it was written during a time when air travel was a great luxury, and, you know, Haley writes it with such a love of the medium of travel and the interesting politics that go along with running an airport. I thought it was absolutely terrific. I really, really enjoyed reading it. Um, it is definitely not a disaster novel as much as the uh, movie came to be known, and obviously it's spinoffs and obviously Airplane that came after it, but I really, really enjoyed it, and it was very easy to picture um, how how 
the splendor of air travel used to be during the time that it was written. I also read The Taking of Pelham 123, which also I really, really enjoyed um, after, you know, obviously, not obviously, but having uh, seen the movie a couple times, both versions, um, and watching it, or um, reading the, the novel, it was also really, really great, and I, I would recommend that as well. I, yeah. With- was that the one they remade with John Travolta and it's the subway in New York? Okay, so that, that I get that one confused with um, the other movie that they ended up remaking, which was The Jail. It was... Um, Assault on Precinct 13. Right. Yeah, all, both really good movies, um, both really good stories, but the book, Taking a Pelham 123, was, was really, really good, and I really enjoyed it. When was that written? Do you remember? Mm, no. I could find out. No. The thing that the thing that I th- found was so remarkable about the taking of Pelham One Two Three, the novel, was that you're talking about a train car in New York being taken hostage, and there's something like fifteen or eighteen hostages, and the author does a really really great job of introducing you to each one of them without making you have to remember who they are every time you see them. So it, you get a sense for who the hostages were, but you you don't start the next chapter chapter thinking to yourself which one was that and what was that guy's name and who was that you just you know who they are and i think that the author did a really great job of that i read what comes next by john katzenbach uh, another author that i've really liked for a long long time um this one was also really really good the idea of a uh, teenage girl is kidnapped uh, by a man and a woman who put her on the internet and charge people a fee to watch their feed and then vote on what happens next to her. Um, And the um, psychology professor who figures it out and is on their trail. I really, really liked it. It was not as suspenseful and scary as I was afraid it would would be. And uh, it actually was really interesting and kind of dove into the idea of this this issue that people have with... um, um, watching others and the idea that that people you know get a strange perverse pleasure out of the pain and pleasure that comes with watching other people so it was really really interesting uh the book that i really enjoyed most of all one of the last ones i read was dancing with myself by billy idol absolutely loved it um one of the things i loved most about it was reading it on my kindle which i have been reading all of these I enjoyed reading on my Kindle because I could bring up the internet right next to my book and watch the music videos, look at the pictures, uh, anything that he was referring to over the course of his long, long career, dating all the way back into the early to mid-70s. The thing that I've always found interesting about Billy Idol is that he, for all intents and purposes, is a rock and roll heavy metal vocalist that does that is not with a band. And when you think about rock and roll, heavy metal from the 80s and the 90s, you think about these great bands, but you don't really think about a soloist. You think about Guns N' Roses, you think about Def Leppard, you think about um, Twisted Sister, but you don't think about a soloist. And when you start to break him apart from his early to mid-70s punk influence you know he was part of the second wave british punk invasion he was there when the sex pistol started and and his band um was one of the premier british punk bands in the 70s before he went off on his own so a lot of that is really interesting finding out how he got involved with that and then listening to the influences 
that made his music what it was. You know, he, he has a lot of country, a lot of Western, a lot of bluegrass in his music. And when you read about that and you read about the, um, the innovation that he brought to heavy metal and rock and roll, you realize what kind of a real musical genius he was. So I really, really enjoyed that. And one of the uh, most difficult parts of the book, though, was the last couple chapters where you get the sense that he had been writing up until those last two chapters and then wrote those last couple chapters in real time dealing with his father getting sick and his father passing away and you know his father finally explained to him how proud he was of billy and and how much that he had accomplished and what he'd become so uh really really terrific book um he's such an interesting character and i did read somewhere that the reason that it took so long for his autobiography to come out was that he chose to wrote, to write it all by himself without a ghostwriter so you really get a sense for his voice i really really uh really really enjoyed that then i read the two books that we're going to talk about and what rob is really wanting to hear about is that i read the first three michael connelly hieronymus bosch books um this is one of those things where rob you've been telling me for 20 years oh you should read these books you should read these books you should read these books and it's one of those one of those situations, as I'm sure everybody out there understands, where when you hear it enough and enough and enough, you just stop listening and you start putting it away because you don't want to enjoy it and then hear from Rob. What would he say? I told you so. And that's exactly what I didn't want to hear. Um, but again, this is one of those situations where, um, where uh, the latest Harry Bosch book came out in hardcover, and so BookBub started selling uh, his earlier books for cheap, cheap, cheap. So... Uh, I decided, you know, why not? There was nothing else out there that was really interesting me. I couldn't, I wasn't interested in looking for more and more new authors. Uh, obviously, Michael Connolly is very uh, tried and true. So I gave it a shot and I read the first three. And um, yeah, that's all I'm going to say. No, you don't get away with it that easy. Well, okay. If anybody out there is listening, I'm going to have to start making a list of the books that I want Rob to read from now on because. Um, I, uh, I read the Black Echo, the Black Ice, and the Concrete Blonde, the first three Harry Bosch books, one right after the other, and it took me uh, probably about 10 days to read all three of them. Um, obviously the first one, the, the Black Echo, was good enough for me to want to read the second one, which was good enough for me to want to read the third, which of the three I would say is probably the best. Um, I think that the mystery of the third the story behind it uh was really the best told i really get a sense that michael connelly found himself as a writer i also really really appreciate the amount of backstory that he wrote for harry leading into the first book in order to write the third one because um i'm sure none of you out there will know this and even if you've read michael connelly's books and you remember it the fact is that uh harry starts the first book working on a case and you get that you understand from his backstory that he is the um orphan son of a, a murdered prostitute and um that he made his name in los angeles as a detective working on the dollmaker case well the second book comes around then the third one the third one he's actually um on trial in a civil case um of the dollmaker case the wife of the dollmaker is suing him for um you know killing the dollmaker 
and uh, going about it against police procedure. Whereabouts at that time, another victim uh, of the dollmaker shows up and find out that there must have been a copycat out there all along. So I, or yes, or that Bosch got it wrong, which, you know, come on, he didn't get it wrong. But in any event, um, I really did enjoy it. The one thing I did have about it was that it was very much a procedural uh, Connolly did have to hit a number of steps, including misdirecting you to the one wrong person. And that that person wasn't necessarily the bad guy, but he was bad of doing something else. Um, and then leading you to another person who he also turns out to be not the right guy until you finally catch the right person and you realize it's the one that you thought it was the whole time. At least I knew it, but that's me. Um, but yes, I did. I really, really enjoyed all three books. I would... Uh, I will probably continue to read them. I'm in no hurry. I wasn't really in a hurry to read the first three. They just happened to show up, and I really enjoyed them, and I was glad that I was able to get them and make my big brother proud. And uh, who knows? Maybe we'll go on to uh, the next one from here. So it's uh, it's interesting. I The latest Harry Bosch just came out called The Burning Room, and obviously I got it the day it came out and read it over the course of two or three days. And there's an aspect of the Harry Bosch story that is prominent in the Black Echo, but doesn't really ever come back through the course of the 20-some-odd Harry Bosch books that followed. And as you're talking, I'm trying to remember what it was about the Black Echo that first appealed to me, why I picked it up, because I have it in paperback, um, and I know I, I think I picked it up in a supermarket or something like that, and I think what initially drew me to the book as it's as it was, not that it was a crime novel, not that it was an LAPD detective, but that Harry was a Vietnam vet. And in fact, I think um, the back of the book seems to take great strides in, in informing that Harry was a tunnel rat, that he was one of those guys who would climb through the tunnels and um, make sure that they were cleaned out of Vietnam, uh, of, um, of North Vietnamese soldiers and, and the the horror and the terror and the nightmares and all that that came um, by virtue of being this tunnel rat. And there hasn't really been a whole lot that I can remember of discussion after that book about his Vietnam experience. And the story of Harry Bosch is one that's told pretty much chronologically to the point where in this last book, he is worried, not worried, he knows that his forced retirement is coming within the year. And the question has always come up, what's going to happen when Harry gets to the age of retirement? Because he's now in his 60s, and he's not obviously when the Black Echo starts, but it's been a 20-year, 25-year journey, and he's ready for, or almost ready for retirement. What's he going to do? And my um, my personal hope had always been that Michael Connolly would go back and do some sort of a prequel, do something that would be a little bit more descriptive of his Vietnam experience and maybe even some more of his his earlier career as a uh, as a as a police officer and a homicide detective. Um, what I will tell you is that Michael Connolly has always maintained that the favorite book of Harry Bosch that he ever wrote was the fourth book called The Last Coyote. And The Last Coyote is where he does go look for the killer of his mom. I don't remember really enjoying it that much. Um, after all this time, the books do start to run together. Although certain of the books do, to me, seem to stand out as, as 
whether they were specific snippets of events or the way I felt after the book was finished. I think The Concrete Blonde was definitely one that has stayed with me that I've really, I still feel is one of the stronger books he's written. Um, also, Trunk Music and Angel's Flight were both um, very memorable for whatever reason as being um, particularly special books. Um, but Michael Connolly, seeing as how we live in Los Angeles, Michael Connolly does a lot of bringing Los Angeles into the story as a character and utilizing local landmarks and restaurants and, and, and all of his books seem to take place in real locations where you theoretically could go to any of these spots and think that you're walking in the steps of Harry Bosch. In fact, we went to um, Lusso and Frank's whatever it was, a few months ago, and I went and sat at the bar, and that was the spot that Harry Bosch, quote-unquote, sits at when he goes to Moose Home Franks, and I had to take a picture there. So uh, Harry Bosch seems to take on a little bit of a mythic lore in and around L.A. because L.A. is such an important part of, um, of the Harry Bosch canon. So anyways, I'm glad you liked it. I don't recall really enjoying the black eyes that much. I think that the, the black eyes, the terminology has to do with drugs mm -hmm. and it ends up in Mexico. And I think the only thing, I, uh, only aspect of the book I other, otherwise remember is that Harry figures out that the guy committed suicide by using his toe on a shotgun. And that's about the only thing I, I, that's about the only thing that I really remember about those books. Um, but I'm glad you read them. And, you know, if you like them, you'll continue reading them and, um, who knows, you might end up catching up. And one of the benefits of reading a, of reading a series, um, or at least having the luxury of reading a series all at once, binge reading, is you get to see how technology changes oh, yeah. through the course of the story. And so looking at Harry Bosch in 19... Whatever was ninety three when the Black Echo came out, and then comparing it to Harry Bosch in two thousand fourteen, where they're relying upon GPS and iPads and things like that, you definitely see um, the way that the character has has um, um, adapted and grown, and yet you still have the same Harry Bosch who's kind of stuck in the nineties, who's not willing to adapt, and does feel like he's the old fish who really prefers. Um, you know, pounding the pavements and knocking on doors to sitting at a computer and researching all day. Um, so, good. I'm, I'm glad you liked them. I really was interested to hear what you thought about them. Um, what are you reading now? Well, actually, I haven't started anything. Uh, the reason being, I, um, I finished The Concrete Blonde on Tuesday, and I knew that I being off of work Wednesday and then the Thanksgiving holiday, I wasn't going to read all weekend, so I wasn't going to start anything, uh, knowing that I wouldn't read until the early next week. So I, uh, I don't know. I, I'm actually, I just picked up, um, oh, first of all, going backwards, sorry. Uh, Taking a Pelham 123 came out in 1973 and Airport came out in 1968. Um, I just picked up Unbroken by Laura, Laura Hillenbrand. Uh, again, it was a book bub, $2.99 deal um i happened to see the trailer during one of the football games on thursday the sound was down but it looked pretty intense so um i, I know that it was uh written by the same woman who wrote seabiscuit and seabiscuit obviously was a really terrific uh movie so um i figured that uh you know maybe i would give that one a shot i'm i'm still trying to bide my time for another couple weeks until uh, my vacation when i can actually read the hardcover books that i do have to read uh, but for right now i do enjoy work reading on my kindle and uh kind of like you just said with the michael Connolly books having uh 
them taking place in Los Angeles and actual places. Another reason why I love reading on my Kindle is because I can look them up on Google and see pictures and understand where they are, look at maps and see where things are happening. Um, so yeah, that's why I enjoy my Kindle. But no, I'm not reading anything right now. All right. Um, tell me what you think about Unbroken. I read it. Oh. Uh, I read it a couple years ago and I liked it. I was a little bit um, confused because um, the character, the main character, the subject of the book, Louis Zamperini, he actually wrote his own autobiography, which chronicled a lot of the same, if not all of the same events that occur in Unbroken. So why was it rewritten? So, yeah, so my question was, what was, what about the story was important for Laura Hillenbrand to write basically a biography of somebody who'd already written their autobiography. Um, and in oh, fact, we were at Sam's Club yesterday and I saw that they, re in anticipation of the movie, um, they've re-released Louis Zamperini's memoir um, and they have re-released Unbroken as not an annotated, but like a pictorial. So it's a bigger version with more pictures and descriptions and footnotes and things like that. So uh, I am looking forward to the movie as well. I'm interested to hear what you think about the book. I was lukewarm about it. Oh, okay. um, but I, I think it was more a function to me of the writing than it was the story. But then you'll have to read it and you'll tell me what you think. I don't want to color you with my interpretation of the book. I, I obviously want you to read it and get your own. But to me... Mm -hmm. I, I just recall the writing feeling very clinical and less sympathetic. So that's interesting that you say that because I I typically tend to stay away from nonfiction books for that reason. And one of the books that we're going to talk about tonight, um, I actually really enjoyed because it was a nonfiction book, but it did not feel like a textbook. Um, and that actually is... Uh, Duel with the Devil, the True Story, I can't see the rest of it, <laughs> uh, by Paul Collins. Um, oh, no, I don't want to download it. Um, the idea being that uh, the story takes place uh, the end of 1799, the beginning of 1800, and the true story of um, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, four years before their famous duel, they... They um, worked as co-counsel on a uh, murder trial defense counsel defense counsel in a murder trial in New York and um, and, and it wasn't it wasn't that it was the first murder trial that that had occurred in in the United States or in New York, but I think that it was the first major sensationalized murder trial not only did you have not only two you had three defense counsels you had Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton you also had another local politician but you also had the advent of the media participation right. and this was the um this is at a time in which um you really were uh, part of the the court system was part of the circuit court, which you may not be as familiar with. We obviously learned a little bit more about it in law school, which was that you could not have trials 
every day like we do now, that there were judges that would travel around a circuit in a local geography, and as they were in a cer- in a location, then they would try cases, and then they'd leave and go to a different circuit. And that's where you kind of hear the terminology of the circuit court. And so this was sort of when um, the first the media was really gaining prominence. Um, it was a murder in, where the two two of the defense counsel were local politicians, not only local, but they were national politicians because Aaron Burr later became vice president. Alexander Hamilton had already been the first secretary of the treasury. And so it really was the first kind of, um, what's the sensationalized. word? Sensationalized trial. Yeah. Um, and so that's why it was, and couple that with, the knowledge that we all have, and obviously at the time they weren't aware of it, the knowledge that Aaron Burr kills they Alexander be, Hamilton, they would become enemies. enemies. Yeah, and the, uh, and yeah, you're bringing up a really good point. I think that the 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 point of the book was not to solve a 215 year old murder. I think the point was to show the numerous coincidences that surrounded this murder trial and that surrounded the co-counsel because not only were Hamilton and Burr at this point not friends and would later become bitter enemies, but they were also uh, financially involved in uh, some of the uh, surroundings that came about with the murder. Uh, The idea being that a young lady was found in the bottom of a well and was presumed to have been murdered by uh, a man that lived in the, um, uh, I guess, Same boarding, uh, house. boarding house. Yeah, that she lived in. But when you look at the um, backstory of this well, it all leads back to the Manhattan Company that was, uh, at the time, attempting to bring fresh water into New York. Um, so you're bringing in this this uh, added level of political intrigue. Not, not to mention the fact that Aaron Burr was the president or the 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 main financier of the Manhattan Company that was bringing water in, and here he is all of a sudden he's one of the defense attorneys. So a lot of these issues kind of playing in with each other as as building this coincidence um, around the um, mysterious death of this woman um, found in the bottom of the well. Um, like I said, the author does not attempt to solve a two hundred twenty five year old murder. Um, although he kind he of does, does. yeah, he kind of does at the end. I think the the idea behind it was just to discuss the interest, intricacies of the legal proceedings in 1800 and to paint a picture of what life was like in New York in 1799 because it really is kind of fascinating when you think about it. And you really get a sense that the author did a ridiculous amount of research and for that I I absolutely um, commend him because it was really really fascinating the um, different details that he was able to come up with and kind of like what I mentioned with um, we were talking about um, whatever the book is that I just said I was going to read that he read Unbroken Uh, Unbroken, right Um, I, uh, I really really liked this book because it did not read like a textbook and that was kind of the reason that I picked it up I again it was a book bub special deal and on the Goodreads and on Amazon a lot of the reviews said that the author did a wonderful job of painting a picture of New York and you know in the turn of the 19th century and that it did not read like a textbook and I was absolutely um, not let down 
I don't know if you can say it that way. I was, um, I was really, really pleasantly surprised and very happy that I read it because I really enjoyed it. It wasn't that long, so it didn't, uh, it didn't drag through the legal proceedings. I mean, definitely get a sense that the author found the court reporter's notes, um, was able to find all the information about the trial. There were a lot of interesting things about the constables at the time and that murder cases were not necessarily things that actually were tried in court, that they were, that, um, cops at the time were able to take their statements and their um, uh, um, their um, uh, what's the word testimony? their testimonies at the time thank you um, and that uh, murder trials really didn't take place at the time and just listening to how long the trials took I mean they went hours and hours into the night this is one of the first times that they actually sequestered a jury and they made the jury sleep in the courtroom next door because they wouldn't let them go home. Um, and like Rob said, I mean, it was really was this the first sensationalized um, murder case in 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 New York, and and what it what it was able to show as far as the ability of the defense attorneys to bring up enough witnesses and enough evidence to overturn the jury's initial belief that the convict that the um that the <laughs> accused was guilty it's interesting because you look at things completely differently than i do um because of our, of our different education and i'll because obviously because i'm an attorney and, and phil isn't and and one of the things that strikes me is that when you think about the trial and he's absolutely right. These trials, as they're described in the book, they would go 18, 20 hours a day. And then the jurors would be sequestered in another room. And then they would start up six hours later and they're back to it going 18, 20 hours a day. And, and to us today, that's absurd. You know, witnesses get tired. Attorneys certainly get tired. Judges get tired. Jurors fall asleep. But you have to understand, at the time, they were of limited time because the judges on the circuit had to move to another location. And, well, and see, that, by the way, ends up being one of the things about the book that I, I, I found fault with. And I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But your, your discussion about the description of the times. I read a lot of, or I like to read a lot of, period work. I like to read about uh, events that took place, whether fictional or non-fictional, uh, fiction or non-fiction, at different periods of time. Like, I've, I've read a lot of Jack the Ripper. I've read a lot about the 1880s, 1890s in London. And what makes those books, so what, what separates those books between the good and the bad are the ability of the author to take the reader and put them in that location at that time. That the reader can smell, can feel, can see what life was like at that time in that location. And if the writer is, is failing at that, then it takes the reader out of the story. This author did a tremendous job, like you mentioned, of really taking the reader and putting them into that time period and does so, by the way, in a way which I didn't understand at first, and I was un I was kind of struggling through, which is the first, however, first section of the book, first few chapters, whatever it is, there's no discussion of a murder. There's no discussion of anything other than this yellow fever. Yeah. And it's the setting of the stage of this was a time when as soon as spring came, 
people were expecting they were going to die because the bacteria and the disease that was dormant during the winter months would finally permeate into the water source and would basically give everybody this disease. And I think it was yellow fever, although I don't remember. And so at the time I'm reading a thing, thinking, okay, what does this have to do with anything? And yet it sort of did, it, it, it was important for two reasons. One, it was important because that was the impetus for the Manhattan Water District and Alexander Hamilton or uh, Aaron Burr's uh, involvement in that. Second, it was important for the reader to understand what life was like mm-hmm. in that time period, mm-hmm. which was you never knew when you were going to die. You you may have enjoyed the, the, the spring and the summer because the weather was getting warm, but you also knew that with warm weather came bad disease and you knew that there were going to be dead bodies on the street and rotting flesh and and the the gutters running with rancid and and diseased water and so that was important to set that stage and i haven't really read a lot of books that go to that extent to set the stage for the reader to really be immersed in the time period now one of the things that i actually didn't like about the book that I wish the writer had improved upon is probably something that appeals more to me because I'm a lawyer than it does to you who's not, which is I would have liked a longer explanation of actually how the trial was conducted because I know that the trial is not conducted in the same method that we know of it today, where there's opening statements and there's direct examination and there's cross-examination, there's presentation of witnesses and the prosecution presents their case and then they rest and then it, and, and that I know is not the method and procedure that was employed back in the early 1800s. However, it was a little disjointed when they finally did get to the trial and there wasn't a a recitation of the testimony. It was a little disjointed to try and figure out, okay, who was presenting their case and how was it being portrayed by the recalling of witnesses because it seemed like the witness for the prosecution ended up being recalled as a witness for the defense and yet they're there was no discussion about whether there had been any cross-examination or, or anything like that. So it it was a little bit muddled to me yeah. as a legal practitioner to try and understand what was the procedure back then. But right. I don't think that was the important part of the was, book. I don't, I don't think that was the point of the book. I mean, you were looking at it from a standpoint of being a, a, a current-day lawyer. You wanted to know how the the legal proceedings in a in a court trial went about the author was not trying to do that the author was trying to tell the important parts of the trial and and what he felt was pertinent to the jury finally coming to you know understand and 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 acquit the the um accused but back on I don't even remember where I was. I, I know we were talking about that you wanted more out of it from the trial standpoint, but I think that the the you mentioned about spending you know the first couple of chapters talking about the yellow fever and the the lifestyle during 1799, and and obviously looking back now, knowing the story, the point that he was making was that he was explaining to you why the Manhattan Works project was so important to. Uh, New York and bringing clean water into the city and obviously this well that was built and where this young girl was inevitably found but I think that the other thing that he was trying to do was he was explaining why at this point in the turn of the 19th century there were really no murder trials 
that went on or took place in the amount of time or the length of time that this one had taken place and why it was so sensationalized at the time. And the reason is because the d defense attorneys had a vested interest in ensuring that their client was acquitted. And I think that's really where the story of the trial and the story of the situation really took off for me. I really enjoyed it. I mean, the difference is you're obviously working in a legal profession. You understand how all this works. Other than, you know, having conversations with you or and, you know, and obviously having been a part of your life for so long, other than that, my experience with the legal proceedings is the second half of Law and Order. <laughs> and that's why the book worked for me. And and that's fine. And and I I'm not saying that it didn't work. Um I'm saying that for for my purposes that was what I was hoping to to get out of it. There was another aspect of the book that I also was hoping to get out of it that I don't know was flushed out a, a not well enough for me, which is what was the draw about this book? I mean that to me the draw of the book what what made it intriguing is the fact that we know how the story ends between Hamilton and Burr. We know that Alexander uh, Alexander Hamilton is shot by Aaron Burr in a duel. And the realization or the discovery that the two of them actually sat at the same defense table side by side and worked to defend a murderer is f a fairly intriguing idea that you as the reader or any of us who know history would say, well, okay, so wait a second, L let me ask this question. How did they get along? Did, was, was, the, was, there, was there animosity between the two of them that was you know, five years before one shot the other. And there was so little in the book that described whether the two of them ever interacted at all mm -hmm. during the murder trial. Mm -hmm. And so you didn't get the feeling, and, and the author did not give you any background as to what the defense attorney's um, investigations were or their preparation for the trial. It was just, here's the trial starting, and now they've now they've carted up all these witnesses that they've discovered were uh, able to, to support the defense's position. Mm -hmm. And yet you never saw whether Hamilton and Burr worked together. Did they interact at all? How it seemed like they had different... Well, how do you get any of this stuff? I, he, I, you've got to imagine that he pulled everything that was in the book from public record, but I wouldn't know that the private dealing... I mean, I'm look, I'm just guessing. I don't know. I mean, up until reading this book, I didn't know that the duels were actually legal, uh, that, that Burr and Hamilton actually had to go to New Jersey to do it because it was still legal there. So um, if nothing else, I'm, I'm taking that away from it. But but you, you bring up a good point. You wanted a little bit more from it. I enjoyed it for what it was, which was a picture of the time and the sensationalism of the trial and the interesting relationships amongst the lawyers in the proceeding. And, you know, even the little things like the autopsies that were, that were, that were performed or not performed. You know, the, 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 the prosecuting attorney brought up the doctor who performed the first autopsy who was a dentist and thought he could get it passed by that they wouldn't notice it. And then, you know, the, the second autopsy was performed when the body of the dead woman was brought out of the house in the coffin and left on the street well, so that even, everybody could see it. It wasn't I mean, even an autopsy. It was just the guy who guy came up and looked and pointed and said, oh, look it, that must be, that must be what it is. And they put him on the stand. So like I said, 
to 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 read it and to put yourself in the time and realize that murder trials didn't happen then, but this one happened because of the vested interest that the defense attorneys had and their financial gain that they had to stand by ensuring that the Manhattan Water Project continued or it didn't or, you know, how everything worked together in order to bring on, you know, the the, the turn of the century coming of, of additional commerce into the city and building New York and building Manhattan. And I think, you know... You, it's just an interesting perspective in the the time. And then after the trial, getting a little look into what happened to Burr and Hamilton. And Burr moved away to Europe for a little while and went totally broke. And I mean, it, the, the two of them did not have the best lives after this leading up to and even after the duel. Was that guy a scumbag or what? He Aaron Burr? I mean, he, he, he owed everybody He money. was the vice president of our country one time. <laughs> he was almost president at one point. So did, as I was reading it, I was thinking, wow, if I were living back then, I probably could have become president. It was that easy for these people who were sure who had like who had no ethics, it sure seemed like it certainly didn't have any bird had any qualms about borrowing money from people and not paying it back that these people well, ended up running our country and that's the thing the interesting thing that i i, I really liked was was it uh, who was it washington that passed away in the beginning of the book how awesome was that to just lead it to read that and and, and read these people's perspectives of George Washington passing away and Alexander Hamilton leading this parade down the streets of New York. And I mean, you can just imagine it, obviously, from the movies that we've seen and the books that we've read. I mean, it just, the author did such an amazing job of putting you in this place. And I think that's what I really appreciate most about it. I absolutely agree with you. I, 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 I do. Um, but I don't think that any publisher would have been interested in this book if the defense of the murder did not involve Hamilton and Burr because I think that's the hook that somebody who is walking through the bookstore and sees this book on the shelf is going to look at it because I read it on my Kindle also, but I'm pretty sure that the cover page of the book has both Hamilton and Burr's name on it. And so the anticipation is that anybody walking down the aisle of the bookstore would see this book and see the two names and say, hey, wait a second. One of those guys killed the other, so there must be a story about how the two of them interacted during this murder trial that led up to one killing the other. And that's where it, it fell flat, because it, it wasn't there. Mm -hmm. the, it, it, it truly felt as if Hamilton and Burr, even though they were sitting at the same defense table defending the same guy, I never got the feeling that they ever talked, yeah. that they ever interacted at all. And back then, people kept diaries and notes of well, that's, everything that's what a lot of the a research lot of was the from. research was from that so you gotta imagine that aaron burr or alexander hamilton had private diaries that mm -hmm. said man this guy burr doesn't know what the fuck he's doing yeah. i feel like i'm carrying him yeah. we've divided up the workload where i'm supposed to focus on these types of witnesses and he's supposed to focus on these types of witnesses and it turns out that i've got my guy squared away but he's still and there was none of that. And and I think when you, you later find out what it was that triggered the actual duel, you realize that it was, and I don't even remember what it was, but it wasn't anything monumental. Right. It certainly wasn't anything that was the product of a lifetime's history that the two right. of them had right. that culminated in this duel. And right. so that was kind of what I was expecting, that this hook of, hey, 
everybody, you know that Burr kills Hamilton, but did you know that they actually sat on the same side of the table and defended the same guy? You never believe the fact that they were best friends and they arm in arm walked out of the court trial together. That that was kind of the point. That's what they were getting at. And and I actually, before uh, paying whatever, $1.99 or something for it, um, I read a lot of the reviews on Goodreads or Amazon, and a lot of them said, you know, don't be mistaken. This has nothing to do with their duel and it's total misdirect in the title and don't be, you know, caught off guard. Well, I knew that. So when I went to read the book, I was not I was not off at all. I knew that this had nothing to do with it. So I guess I was more prepared than anything else. But Well, look, I'm, I'm glad I read it. I'm glad you recommended it. I did enjoy the writing of it. I, I did knock down my review of it on Goodreads, whoever it was, because I was hoping that there would be more of that discussion of the relationship, but I'm glad I read it and I enjoyed it. So that was uh, that was the first book that we read. Yeah. Now, the second book that we read was actually at my suggestion. It was called The Odessophile by Frederick Forsyth. And Frederick Forsyth, is, as many of you know, is um, really a world-renowned author and is credited along with Robert Ludlum for um, basically creating the spy genre, I guess, with Jean Le Carré. The three of them really are are known for creating the spy genre from, I guess, the 1970s forward, the Cold War and, and that, kind of, that kind of stuff. And let me tell you how I came up with this book because, look, we've seen Frederick Forsyth's books in the bookstore for years. I, I picked up The Day of the Jackal probably when I was 14 or 15 years old. I read the first chapter, was completely lost, thought, thought that the writing was dry, and I, I put it down. But we we know. I mean, he, he was writing books up until, I think he may even still be writing books. I'm, I'm not sure. But the way that I came up to this book is, and you may not know this, I love lists. I love book lists. Anytime anybody publishes that they have a list of books, the best of this, the 20 best of that, the 100 best of this, the 100 books you need to read, whatever it is, I will read that list because I like to get an idea of what books I haven't read. And I also like to pat myself on the back for the books that I have read. Mm -hmm. And so at some point, I read a um, through one of the websites I I, um, subscribe to, criminalelement.com. And they're they're very well known, or they're well known, I don't know about that, but they... uh, deal in criminal books, books about crime. And so on end of October, they published this list, the five best, what's it called? Uh, World War II, the genre's best fiction. World War II, the genre's best fiction. And so I said, okay, here are the five best books, whoever this creator of this list is, these are the five best books about World War II. And you'll know of a very surprising, yet probably not surprising book is number one, and it is Exodus. Exodus by Leon Uris. And I don't really consider that to be a World War II book, but I guess it is because a, a great portion of the book takes place during World War II, um, the Holocaust, and and, um, and then it, it devolves from there into a discussion of the establishment of the Israeli state. But the second book on that list is The Odessophile. And so being a, um, somebody who enjoys lists and certainly somebody who enjoys World War II books, in fact, the book I'm reading right now is the Bill O'Reilly book, Killing Patton. Oh, yeah. um, so love World War II books, thought that it looked interesting, and so I suggested it. Um, and Phil said yes, and so off we went. Now, he read it not only a lot faster than I did, he also 
got it a lot faster because he read it on his Kindle and I buy it used online. It's amazing how that happens. I just click on the Amazon button. I click the one button and it shows up right there. I can read it right away. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, all right, I'm almost done with the book. How far are you? And I said, um, it should get here next Thursday. <laughs> but when I did read it, I was able to power through it pretty quickly. And um, so it's it's not a book that I was familiar with. I, I'd heard of it before and I'm sure they made it into a movie, but I, I John didn't. White. John Okay. I, I had not looked into it yet. Um, but the, the basic story is that um, a, a reporter, a journalist, on the day that the people in Germany find out that John F. Kennedy has been assassinated. Which is also the day that he actually was assassinated. Right. It was on November 22nd. I don't remember if there was a time change. Okay. November 22nd, Maybe 1963. Um, he's driving home and he sees that there's some police activity at apartment building. And it turns out that the, uh, the cop who is... Yes, journalist. Uh, the cop who um, is kind of handling the crime scene says, well, it's just a suicide. An old old man killed himself. And so the, uh, the main character ends up driving away and going home and sleeping with his stripper girlfriend. Um, the character, by the way, his name is Peter Miller. And uh, I think it was the next day the cop set, calls Peter up and says, you're going to want to take a look at this. And the cop hands to Peter a journal. And it turns out it's a diary uh, was written by the gentleman who had killed himself, and Peter finds out that the gentleman who had killed himself was a Jew who had been in one of the concentration camps and um, had described all these atrocities that had been committed by this one particular commandant of the um, of the ghetto before moving to the camp, and then he was the commandant of the camp. I don't remember which camp it was, but um, I think he was called the Butcher of Riga, was, uh, was his character name. Yeah. And so um, after having... Gosh, Rushman. After having read this diary, um, the uh, uh, the character Peter decides to basically take it upon himself to track down this uh, this SS commandant to bring him to justice. Now, at the same time that he's doing that, there is a organization that has been formed called Odessa, and Odessa was a group that was trying to rescue the um, SS officers who had so far evaded prosecution by the Nuremberg Court and by the, um, by the, the European courts for prosecution of their crimes during World War II. And so this Odessa group was, um, was very well funded and was um, protecting these SS officers as they were in hiding in Argentina and as they were trying to establish new lives to uh while avoiding prosecution and it turned out that as the all these events are unfolding odessa was also active in um i don't remember if it was palestine or it was one of the arab countries that they there the odessa group in germany was creating i think it was some sort of an atomic bomb nuclear weapon that they were then going to deliver to the arab country for use against israel and so what you later find out is the person who's in charge of this factory in Germany that is developing this nuclear bomb is this butcher of Riga that Peter Miller is is tracking down. And so that's the story. It's kind of like this race against time. It's a little bit about spies. It's Peter Miller trying to track down this guy while the Odessa organization is trying to um, keep this SS officer safe long enough to deliver the nuclear weapon to give to the Arabs and, and use against Israel. And so you, the, I think the book starts out with 
um, if uh, if Kennedy had not been assassinated, then none of these events would have happened because it was the assassination of Kennedy that drove Peter Miller to take to the streets that night. And if, if Kennedy had not been assassinated, Peter would not have driven past this house where this guy had committed suicide, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's basically the story. And then um, it's a race against time from there as, as Peter is trying to go from this stage to this stage to this stage to try and track down the location of, of this Edward Rushman, the, the Butcher of Riga. Um, so the book was written in 1972. And by that time, I think it was pretty well known, the atrocities that had been committed by the Germans during World War II. And yet, I still felt like I, when I was reading it, I wanted to put myself into 1972 and tried to, to, tried to figure out whether any of the conclusions or, or stories that are told in the Odessa file were surprising at the time. And I, I really couldn't get that because there's reference in this book to the um, to the, the capture of Adolf Eichmann and his trial, obviously the Nuremberg trial. So I don't get that um, that the events that took place as are portrayed in this uh, suicide, uh, this, Ger- this German who, su- who killed himself in his diary, I don't recall that I don't believe that that the discovery of the atrocities was that surprising. Do you have a thought on it as to what the the purpose of the timing was? Well, I I actually the only thing that I can think of is that you said it was written in 1972 and 1972 was the year of the Munich Summer Olympics. And so I wonder if maybe that had a little bit in you know if, if you don't remember the during the 1972 Olympics um the uh, Israeli Olympics team was was held hostage uh, through the duration. Then, uh, in an attempt for the uh, the hostage takers, the terrorists, to move them out of Munich, they were taken to the airport where all of them were subsequently killed, um, except for the terrorists, which then, as you may know, led to the Israeli um, um, Mossad heading out to attempt to find the terrorists afterwards. Uh, popularized by Steven Spielberg's movie Munich. But the yes, it was written in 72, and, and I wonder if maybe the Munich Olympics were the impetus for writing it, but when you take a step back and you realize that the book takes place in 1963, I think that what Forsyth was trying to do was explain that even 18 years after the war had ended, there were still people in Germany who didn't understand what their 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 heritage had done, and they put he put... Peter Miller as the protagonist because Peter was 10 or 12 when World War II ended. His father had fought in World War II and ultimately we find out in a a stupid coincidence he was connected to the Butcher of Riga. I was was too, but there were so many little coincidences in the book. Um, But I really don't get the sense that that was really the point i think that the point was to recognize that even still 18 years after world war ii and he makes a really interesting point of it a couple times in saying in the novel that the german people that were not involved in the war did not know and were oblivious and following the war the german government made it a point of not talking about it and not 
educating it in schools, not discussing in the newspapers. So when Miller does get the diary and he does read it, he is appalled as, you know, if, if you use him as the um, prototypical early or late 20s, early 30s German coming out of the second wave following World War II, they didn't know this. And it was important education for him and for all the German people at the time. And I think that's why he took it upon himself to do it. But yes, it was very procedural. He goes to this place, he learns a little bit of information. He goes to this place, he learns a little bit more that sends him to the next place, which sends him to the next place, which sends him to the next place. And then ultimately he comes into contact with the Israeli Secret Service that is going to teach him how to be an ex-German officer in order to go undercover to infiltrate the Odessa. Yes, it, there was so much that was just too coincidental and too much leading from one to the other to the other to the other. Very much a procedural in the negative connotation of the word procedural. Um, but despite it all, it was entertaining. It was interesting read if you put yourself in the time frame. And like I said, if you you continue to read it, understanding that at the time, the people of Germany in 1963 still had no clue that this had happened. Um, I can definitely see why um, readers in the early 70s, especially following the Munich Olympics, were drawn to this and were interested in it because it is a post-World post War II Holocaust book that has a happy ending with the good guys winning. You know, there's a... Um you, you mentioned something that's that's very telling, which is that the um, the post-war Germans, certainly the the generation after World War II, that they were not really well educated about these the events that had taken place. And when Peter Miller goes to his publisher at the outset and says, "I want to write a story about this journal that I found." The, the the publisher says no says nobody will read it they don't want to be reminded about what happened they don't want to be told about what their parents did they just want to continue to live in oblivion and peter has a problem with that and he's asked along the way many times why are you doing this why are you doing this and he refuses to tell them and we later find out that there is a connection between the the person he's hunting and the death of his father which i think was necessary because if you don't reason for him to go on this journey if you don't yeah. connect the two then he's you just do have a problem yeah and he's just an investigative journalist doing something but we don't really have any reason why he's doing it right and and through during the book he he meets up with simon wiesenthal and if you wanted it to solely be a hunt for a hidden a hiding nazi you might as well use him as your protagonist exactly yeah. you wouldn't have used a german who's not jewish who is of the next generation after the war to be your protagonist so they had to link them together although you you could have done that because if your point was just to examine the fact that 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 post-world war ii germans were oblivious to what had happened then you could tell that story but I think that uh, Forsyth wanted to make sure that there was some sort of connection. So at the end, you went, oh, now I understand why he did that. Now it makes total sense, even if it was completely far-fetched. Yeah, I, I agree with you. But I think that the other reason why the book was written was 
because I think that after Eichmann had been captured and then tried and executed, I think the world, other than a couple of few individuals like Simon Wiesenthal, I think the world thought it was over. And the world was like, okay, great. Hitler's obviously dead. Eichmann was the next in command, and he certainly was in charge of the final solution. So now he's dead. So we we can wor- we don't have to worry anymore about um, these Nazis coming out of the woodwork. It's over. It's done. They don't exist anymore. You know, we've we've chopped the head off of the leader, and all the other peons will now just die on their own. Right. And this was not only was it written in 1972 and took place. 18 years after the war, but I think it was intended as a reminder that, hey, just because you killed the head of the leader doesn't mean that there's not still a groundswell mm. of support for those people, yeah. even though they're not around anymore. Right. Um, and, and this was a time when 1972 was um, the height of Vietnam, the height right after the hippie movement and um, you know free love and all that kind of stuff, at least in the United States, um, that society i think could have been ripe for a resurgence and and i think that this book was a a reminder not only of what these people were capable of but also of how despicable they really were Mm -hmm. that it's possible that those people were still out there right i i did not think about that until you just mentioned that but you bring a really good point i i i think that uh yeah, you, you, that, you're absolutely right. I mean, what he is basically saying is that it was to- it's plausible, it's totally possible that something like that could happen. The idea that the, um, that the Nazis, in preparation for the eventual downfall and destruction of the Third Reich, had planned to take care of themselves, at least their officers and their high-ranking officials, for when that inevitability took place. And that's what the Odessa was. And, you know, uh, you know, uh, moving them off to non-extradition countries like Argentina or, you know, some places in the Middle East, you know, it was... I think Forsyth was definitely pointing a finger at it and saying, hey, everybody, keep in mind, just because a couple of the guys were tried and hanged after Nuremberg, they're still probably out there and you still have to be ready Don't for turn it. turn your back on them. Exactly. And I, I, I hadn't even thought about that until you mentioned that. So, you no, know, I, th- I think you're totally right. And, and as I was flipping through the book, which I can do because I have the book, I don't need Let to re. I don't need to re-download the book. Right yeah, I've got it right here. Um, the author talks about the research that he did. I don't know if it's in the version yeah. you read, yeah. where he talks about the fact that he interviewed people who didn't realize they were being interviewed for a book that are people who were in hiding, who are at least at the time, were anticipating that there would be a second wave of the Nazi movement. Um, And so I think it was very important that he expose them um, under the guise of creating a spy novel. I mean, you can create a spy novel that takes place in space, but the reason why a Jean Le Carré, a Robert Ludlum, a Frederick Forsyth is successful is because, or even a Tom Clancy as you go into the 80s and the 90s, is because they utilize real situations or potentially real situations, potentially real enemies. And what makes it more intense is the fact that this shit could happen. Yeah. And I think it was an, it was an opportunity when 
anybody could have written about the Cold War, but that wasn't his focus. And he does end up writing about the Cold War. I think Later. others of his books yeah. are. Um, but nobody Jackal wants... Was, to, uh, Jackal was um, an attempt at assassinating the French president, Charles right. de Gaulle. Yeah. Um, and I don't know about any of his other books. I, I really am not that familiar with um, Frederick Forsyth. I know he wrote The Fourth Protocol, which was a Russians versus Americans. But I, I, I still... When you think about the Cold War, you think about two time two two instances in history. You think about the very early sixties, mm -hmm. Khrushchev versus Kennedy, mm -hmm. and then you think about the eighties, Reagan versus Gorbachev. Right. You don't I don't I don't get the feeling that the Cold War was that active during the seventies. Well but there was also the situation of the um uh, uh, 1980 Olympics in Moscow that we boycotted. Yes. The 84 Olympics. That was Reagan. Was boycotted. Yes. Yeah, but they had to, it had to have come from somewhere. And I think that maybe we're missing it just because we weren't alive at the time, but or we weren't old enough to understand that it was going on. But you do bring up a really good point. And, and I, th well, think about, think about the 70s. What was the 70s? If you think about the, the bridge between the Cuban Missile Crisis and, Gorbachev, Reagan. We were caught up in the Vietnam War through all of it. You have Vietnam War, and you also have... Disco. Disco. <laughs> no. Yes, disco, but you also have... That would have been a cause for a war. You have the Middle East. Yes. You have, you have Israel versus the Arabs. You have Carter, and you have the, the whatever is the Camp David Accord. Right. So you don't really get the feeling that the 70s was American versus Russian. And so... For for Frederick Forsyth to write a book in 1972, which was American versus Russian, it probably would have felt anachronistic. Somebody would have looked at that and said, "Wait, wait, that's an early 60s thing. That yeah, that's that not." And yet, taking even though he put it in 1963, when he could have written about a Cold War event, he wrote it as a cautionary tale of these people are still alive. We're only 1972 is only 27 years after the end of the war. Those people are still alive, 1970 to 27. Those people are still alive, and they've they are absolutely still. They're mobilizing, and they're out there, and we need to be aware of it. Yeah. And they're still adamant about their position. Right. So I think that that could be what kind of sparked the the interest in writing the book. Um, I would would be interested in how this book would be written today. Because, I mean, it's so formulaic. Oh yeah. And and this we're gonna um, we're gonna we're gonna make you into we're gonna make you a journalist into a former German soldier, and we're gonna officer. do it, uh, officer. Yeah, and we're gonna do it over the course of five pages. I mean, Pretty it was much. it was like you could kind of hear the the 1980s training music in the background yeah. of this guy, you know, learning how to be a German officer, and it was pretty intense. The the um, the scene in which he's being questioned Questions. about, and he was questioned. It, it says he he goes through like three or four pages of question, 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 and then it says this went on for four hours, and you're like. Really? Yeah. And this guy who was a journalist was that yeah. good. <laughs> and yet at the end of the day, you realize that, 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 that the, the final culmination of the book was kind of a letdown. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it kind of ended by happenstance. 
um, it just so happens that the bomb that was placed under his car never seemed to ignite because it was too fucking cold. Oh, that, because, that, because of the suspension in his car wasn't as rocky because it was a special special Jaguar. I know. Yeah. And, and yet. And then when he went to when he went to the the butcher's house that they couldn't call because the telephone line went down because of the weather or something. Yeah. yeah. But but the 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 bad guy's henchman says, "Oh, here's a car I'll take it." And then of course and the car explodes. The wrong car. Yes, of course. And you're sitting there going, "Wait a second. Hold on, guy. You've now been training for all this time. You're trying to stay off the radar. You want to be identified as a German. And so go ahead and drive your own car, which is oh. extremely identifiable, which everybody said on every page of the book. That his car was extremely identifiable because it was a special edition Jaguar, and British, and yeah, in Munich. Yeah. But it's nineteen seventy-two. It's not two thousand fourteen. I know. And I, I just, I wonder yeah, what. I don't know. I, well, I thought that. I thought that too. I thought, well, you know, this was these were normal, regular, run-of-the-mill pot boilers, uh, and this is just you know the kind of books that people like to read back then. I mean, that's what I thought. Now, wait a second. If you're creating the genre, you can do it however you want to do it. Yeah. Frederick Forsyth wasn't competing with anybody. True. He 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 didn't have. It wasn't as if he was writing a a legal thriller in the early or the mid 1990s where he was competing with Grisham and Tarot and Philip Friedman and whoever else it was, where he had to make sure that he didn't fall yeah, into a pothole. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was creating this right. genre all by himself, basically. Right. right. Um, and I don't. I think John Le Carre was still early '80s. No, he, he was probably around then, okay. wasn't he? I don't know. I don't know. I don't Ludlum was not really, not really writing that type of yeah. of of spy novel until the late '70s, early '80s. So, yeah. he he was creating it, so he could do whatever he wants. So people would read and go, "Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Oh my God, what an idiot! How can we see that coming?" And the, those of us who have read all of those other books, we're yeah. sitting there going, wow, I, come on, dude. I, I tried to do that as well and, and, you know, trying to put myself in the time frame. So, yeah, I, I did the same thing. Now, have you have you read any of any other spy novels? Have you read Ludlum or John le Carre or anything like that? You haven't? Okay. No. Okay. And I've read a few of them. Um, I will say that what I, I, I was nervous I was reticent about reading this book, Sight Unseen, because I did attempt to read Day of the Jackal, and I, I couldn't get through it. I was obviously younger. Um, but And this is something that, um, that came up when I had sat down with Peter James and we were talking. British authors have a, a stigma Sorry, of being... That What's that? Name dropping? Yeah. yeah. Um, British authors have a stigma of being dry. And um, I was nervous that this book would be somewhat unreadable. What What did you think about the book reading-wise? Oh, I thought it was fine. I, I, I was entertained. I mean, it was easy to read. It wasn't that challenging. I, I agree with you. I was kind of a little bit concerned, you know, understanding the... Uh, the stigma that you know a John Le Carre has, as far as being difficult to read, uh, like you said, being very dry, um, and looking at the other titles that uh, that Forsyth has written, none of them being interesting to me, or none of them being books that I I would want to read in the future. I think the only reason I was interested in this was because it was probably three ninety nine on BookBub or something, uh, but also because it's an interesting. Um, uh, topic that is important to me being a Jew and I think that's really the only reason that I was really into it not to mention the fact that it was something that you wanted to read and I had picked the last one 
And I think that Robert Ludlum also wrote a book that kind of touches on the same subject. And I, I want to say, I want to say it's the Holcroft Covenant, I think deals with a very similar subject matter. Um, I've read, um, as, as Phil's going to go ahead and Google it, I think the Holcroft Covenant, and he wrote obviously tons of tons of books. Um, I've read a couple of John Le Carre's. I read, um, I think one of the first George Smiley books. And then I read a little drummer girl, which was made into a movie with Diane Keaton. And I, re- I kind of enjoyed it, but not enough did I enjoy either of those books to want to read more. I did read more Robert Ludlum, and I read some of the early books, and then I read some of the more recent books prior to his passing. And you can tell from reading like The Born Identity, the book, not the movie, the original book, and then reading his last books, which I think I read The Sigma Protocol and The Janssen Directive and The Apocalypse Watch. And those books that were more towards the end of his career, they were much more about the action. The earlier books were much more about the intrigue. Mm -hmm. And it was that intrigue. And I think um, if you think about it, if you read enough of the Tom Clancy books, you'll get that as well. The earlier books are more about the intrigue. The later books are much more about the action. And I enjoyed the later books more. Um, In fact, one of the books that I really enjoyed, and I I don't want to give anything away in case you decide you want to read it, um, was the Apocalypse Watch by Robert Ludlum, um, and basically, if I if I remember correctly, it was spies, the, the typical type stuff. But it turned out that this one spy was trying to infiltrate a group that, I, if I recall correctly, they'd actually kept Hitler alive. And so, at the end of the book, you your hero comes face to face with Hitler, who is now forty years older, thirty years older, whenever it was written. And the anticipation was that they were going to release him back on the world and reconnect with all of the other Nazis who had been in hiding and the new wave of neo-Nazis to attempt to resurrect the Nazi movement. And and there was a lot more action and, and that was something, that was like a storyline that really kind of felt more prescient to me than Cold War stuff, which I think if you're a Cold War buff, you're a Cold War buff because you were alive during that time and you were paying attention. I mean, we were kids. It it didn't really mean much to us. This idea of Star Wars and it it was kind of more science fiction than anything real and the tear down this wall and that kind of stuff, it it didn't really feel to us like we were part of it because we were so young. But if you grew up in the 70s, or more importantly, you grew up in the 60s and you were hiding under your desk because you were aware, you were afraid of the nuclear bomb, it would really be much more prominent to you. Did you see the Star Wars trailer, by the way? I did. I thought it looked really cool. Although, I, I confess, I, I hate to say it, because I saw some of the trailers that were fake. Oh, you did? Oh, I did. Did you, you didn't see any trailers? There was one trailer where it's, you know, long ago in a galaxy far away and it's, James Earl Jones's voice, and then it's like this fat schlub guy who's like swinging this this sword in a, and it was terrible. It was like a white guy in a in like a jumpsuit who's swinging a sword, making these weird like, oh, I know how to sword fight, and I'm like, okay, this isn't real. And then when when the first character's up, swords up, helmet on, and he's African American, it was like, wait, okay, hold on, is this real? Or is this not real? Where, where, where's Kevin Hart? <laughs> <laughs> so I, was, I was a little bit unsure if what I was watching was real, but 
but yeah i i'm excited about it i think it it looks good and um i don't remember was it was what was the voice do you do you know what the voice was it wasn't James Earl Jones. It wasn't Darth Vader. I have no idea what it was. I don't know. No, Darth Vader died at the end of Jedi. Well, that was why I was confused. I because the oh, first spoiler alert. Well, because the because <laughs> the first version of the trailer I saw was that made up one, and so I wasn't sure. All right. No. All right. So, um, so you you mentioned you you don't think you'd be interested in reading any more of his books. Uh, I don't think so. I think some of his later books actually delved into. Um, like the Middle East, which to me is not very interesting. No. I read some of I read uh, um, the Constant Gardener, John Le Carre, oh, yeah. um, which I liked. I didn't particularly enjoy the movie very much, okay. um, but the book I thought was okay. But again, I haven't really been drawn to read any more. Yeah. I'm kind of interested. I I think I'd like to pick up the uh, the Day of the Jackal, um, try, it try it again. But again, I'm a little bit hesitant because. If it's as dated as this one felt, um, I don't know whether I'd, I'd really be as interested in it. And and I, I looked up the fourth protocol, and it just seems real dry. Even though they they made a movie ab- about it, I don't I don't have any interest really. Now you actually attempted to read a John le Carre. You attempted to read the Red House, Russia, right? Russia, Russia House. House. Yeah, but I was probably about twelve or thirteen, and I was way too young for it. And again, it was too dry, and I think I was a little bit over my head. Yeah, I I, I seem to recall you didn't get that far into it. No. All right. Well, I mean, look, if I see a book that uh, you know, I, I I will take a look. I'll I'll see. Put it on the stack. I'll uh, um. With all the other ones. Yeah, with all the other ones. Uh, look, I got all my uh, Peter James books there. I yeah, eleven of them. That's, uh, um, over yeah, I know. Um, I'll 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 look if I'm at a used bookstore. If I find one that looks interesting, I'll pick it up. I'm not going out of my way to get one. Um, oh, I I forgot to tell you, I got at the um, used bookstore the other day. I got a Doctor Jekyll Mister Hyde book, but it is Doctor Jekyll and Mister Holmes. Oh. It is Sherlock Holmes meets Dr. Okay. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, told by Dr. Watson. Um, so I, that's on my shelf to read. I've also got, even though I said that I was going to stop reading the David Baldacci books, um, the new book that came out called The Escape, which um, is the character John Polar, which is the John the Jack Reacher character. It actually looks interesting because um, Polar's brother escapes from prison. So I'm, I'm actually, for whatever reason, I, I kind of like prison break type type of things i think it's kind of an interesting book so i got that and um when we were at uh, sam's club yesterday I, I bought the new stephen king book amy was surprised because this new book is called revival i think um and it's made a lot of um a lot of lists so far of of being really good and i'm not quite sure what it's about yet i i hope it's not too creepy but um, the last few Stephen King books that I've read, I really kind of enjoyed. I read Mr. Mercedes earlier in the year, and I really liked it. I, I think you'd like it. It's not a horror book at all. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of interested to see how that works out. Um, and then, of course, the new Tom Clancy books comes out on Tuesday, um, which is a, a Jack Ryan, and a Jack Ryan Sr. Obviously, the other a Jack Ryan Jr. And, and his other cohorts are in it, but I think it's more a Jack Ryan book. So I'm hoping it's... One of the things I liked about Tom Clancy as he got later in Jack Ryan's career as Jack became president was I really enjoyed the politics aspect of it. It, it didn't really require to me as much of the action because I really enjoyed the way Tom Clancy did his research to, um, to describe the politics. So I'm kind of hoping that this one may be a little bit more of the politics and less of the 
shoot him up type stuff. Um, so anything else you guys say? No, he shakes his shrug, shrugs his shoulders. Um, all right, so uh, that's it. Less, uh, less clink, 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 clinkling of ice, clinking of ice. Um, yeah, then the shrugging of uh, the the clearing of the throat. Um, so, anyways, that's uh, lucky you. You got a double dose of book therapy this weekend. Uh, book therapy thirteen as Twitter. robcohen13.com is my website or my blog site, whatever you want to call it. You can call bookTherapy thirteen at gmail.com. And thank you for letting us lie on your couch. Okay, I can't find my cursor. There we go. See you later. Bye.